This is Women in STEM Career and Confidence, the podcast for scientific and professional women who want to restore confidence, make meaningful impact, and balance the things and people that mean most to them. I'm Dr. Hannah Roberts, and I'll be sharing with you insights and inspiration into the mindset and skill set to help you navigate your career and lead powerfully. Today, I want to introduce you to Bethany Probert. I came across Bethany on LinkedIn because she is the vice chair of the WISE, the Women in Science and Engineering Young Professionals Board. And she's also an astrophysicist turned software engineer and the 2021 Women in Tech Rising Star. So in her story today, we look at how the lack of role models and representation in certain subjects really negatively filters down to the aspirations of young people. We also talk about how Beth has navigated her big career pivots and how she's now giving back to others through the WISE campaign. And at the end, you will hear Beth's galvanizing advice that I just want to bottle up and play back to myself every single morning. So thank you for that, Beth, and let's dig into your story. So hello and welcome to the show today. I am really excited to be joined by Beth Probert, who is on the show today. So I want to start by asking Beth to introduce herself. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I am Beth. I'm a consultant engineer working at Capgemini Engineering, and I work specifically in their high integrity software expertise center, where I help make software that keeps people safe. That's super interesting, actually. So um, in what context do you help people keep safe? So the software we make is for scenarios where even the smallest risk of the smallest thing going wrong could result in something catastrophic from, um, you know, major networks going offline all the way through up to death of people. So things where it's a really high pressure situation. Um, a way I like to describe it is, you know, sometimes when you're on your phone, the software might freeze. It's a bit annoying, but you can turn it off and on again. And whilst you've been annoyed for a couple of minutes, the world still carries on. Whereas if you are a pilot flying a plane full of people over the Atlantic Ocean and your software on your plane freezes, so you can't tell how high you are, what the wind speed is, you can't turn a plane on and off again. That's just not feasible. It would be very dangerous. So our software goes into scenarios like that to make sure that pilots or train drivers or submariners are never put into situations where they could risk dying purely because of a software fault. Wowzers, it's like you know all of my special IT techniques that I have. And I just puzzle, <laughs> turn it off and on again. That's literally the only thing I know how to do when things go wrong. Um, and actually, that's put things in a whole different context for me. So, yeah, just thinking about someone being in a plane or driving a train or doing something really high pressure that involves the lives of other people in their hands. And what do you do in that scenario? So, that's really quite impactful. The work. Yeah, I think that's something I really like about my job is a lot of people don't know about it, which I guess is a good thing because you only find out about my job when the software goes wrong and they're looking for someone to blame. Um, but what I do for people who are interested in tech out there is called embedded software. So where the software is embedded in a larger system like a train or a plane and sort of works in harmony with the other components to work properly. I've got you. I get it. So 
how on earth did you end up doing this? Right, take me back to the start. So when did you kind of even get interested in science and engineering in the first place? So I'll start off by saying my route into my current job was very windy and full of lots of turns and backtracks. So it wasn't the straightforward route that a lot of people take where they maybe go do computing at college or computer science university and move straight into tech. That is not me. My story is a bit different to that. Um, so when I was younger, sort of about 10, 11, I always had a really big interest in space. I was lucky enough to grow up in the countryside with not too much light pollution, so I could always go out in my garden, look up at the stars, and I was just always intrigued by what's actually up there, how big is the universe, kind of asking yourself those really big questions about life, which was surprising at a young age, but I guess that's just how I've always been. And I was lucky enough that when I was at school, as well as being interested in science, I was actually quite good at it. I was good at science and maths, getting good grades at school, and you know normally those two things don't go together there are quite a lot of people who are really good at maths but say oh it's not for me or a lot of people struggle with it so I guess I was lucky in that sense um, and I knew when I grew up I wanted to do something that used science and maths every day but what became difficult was I didn't have any role models to look up to to tell me about oh there, this is a career you could do this is what you're interested in this might be a job you like um, and when I went up to my teachers at secondary school and said, oh, I really like physics, I really want to do something with physics, the constant response I got was, you'd make a really great physics teacher, which oh, wow. I think, I know, I think it's partially because, you know, there are a lot of gender stereotypes around women being teachers and not sort of hardcore scientists. But then equally, there's also a huge gap in the UK in women science teachers, specifically in physics. So they may have had a bit of an agenda on saying that to me. So it's slightly, I feel, I feel for them slightly looking back in time, but I didn't want to be a teacher. I had no interest in teaching. Um, so this kind of just left me more confused with what I was going to do with my future. I knew I had this passion and this drive, but I had nowhere to channel my energy. And then when I was in year 11, we used a piece of software called Fast Tomatoes, which people of a certain age might remember. Um, and if you've not heard of it, it's a piece of career software where you like answer related personality questions about the kind of things you like to do and the kind of careers. And it spits out a lot of jobs that it thinks are suited for you. But all the jobs that spat out for me were like marketing and graphic design and things that didn't resonate with me at all. And so I also didn't find that very helpful. Um, but one thing I did manage to do is because I knew I love science and I could pick my A-levels at college, I picked to do science. So I did physics, maths and further maths at college, um, which was a good decision for me because the physics course at Farnborough Sixth Form when I went had an astrophysics specific module. So that's space science, which is what I was really passionate about, that little niche bit of physics. Um, and I was really excited that I actually get to study that for the first time rather than sort of more general science and college is where things started to change for me. I had teachers who listened to my passion, understood that actually, you know, it wasn't a hobby science for me. It's something I wanted to do forever. I told them repeatedly, I don't want to be a teacher. I want to do science. And it was nice to actually have some adults who encouraged me and wanted to support me and were willing to open doors for me. Um, one of my first year physics lecturer, a guy called Luke, he even encouraged me to start the first physics society at the college so that I could share my love of physics with others who were like minded and also grow my network and meet people who also wanted to go do similar things in their futures. 
which was really cool. I'll come on to the importance of networks later, but that is a big moment for me in realizing what's important in your future. Mm, um, what a great piece of advice back then as well. Absolutely. I'm so grateful to him. Luke, if you happen to listen, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, um, hold on. Before you move on. Yes. I've got to go back to that. Is, did you call it Fast Tomato software? Fast Tomatoes, yeah. I think we had something similar when when I was in school as well. I don't think it was called Fast Tomatoes. I can't remember what it was. But the thing it came back for me was um, you should be a cavity wall installer or a builder. I think because I'd said I like being outdoors because I like Oh, sport. gosh. And then it came up with all these outdoor kind of really hands-on um, careers. So... <laughs> Yes, that, I guess that's an example of when software isn't so intelligent. Maybe. Well, exactly. It's tried to do a one size fits all strategy rather than celebrating actually what makes you different. Like, I don't think at any point it asked me, are you interested in science? And maybe if it had, it would have yeah. given me completely different answers. But it was asking me things about, do I like to think creatively? which I do. And as an engineer, that is a really key skill. Mm -hmm. But obviously it associated that with creative jobs like designing drawing and that's just not me that's not what I meant by my answers so I'm hoping things have improved since then that was quite a long time ago but yes I have no doubt it has to be an improvement on what was there in terms of career advice when we were growing up but I think there is still the challenge of being quite young and making some big choices in your life that narrows down potentially what you end up doing for the next let's call it five to ten years of your life and then you've moved and grown as a person and you might be a different person at the end of all that and want something different so tell me about the next phase that you went into after that physics maths and further maths I should yeah. mention I only got as far as maths that, <laughs> so I did biology chemistry maths the maths is actually when I look back on it, it was one of the most helpful things when I went to do my chemistry degree. So without the maths, I think I would have been in trouble. Maths is such a good foundation, whether you want to go into STEM or not. It teaches yeah. you so many things you use every day, even basic things like being able to set a budget or working out how long a drive is going to take involve maths. So you oh, might I'm not need to do it at an advanced level. <laughs> no, it's not easy, is it? Especially if you're having a bad brain day. I like it. I actually think it's got a meditative quality to it when you're doing maths, um, when you're working things out. I think the part that was missing for me at um, A level was if they had told me the application of it, like when we were doing NMR and we're working out the differential equations of the area under the curve because it had an application for us, I would have got it. But when you're just looking at the the actual theory of something for me it did, just didn't resonate and it wasn't till later that I went oh that's what that was about <laughs> well I think that's where people like role models or people that are in those jobs become so important because they actually give a context to those equations like you said is a key thing in school saying oh I'm never going to use the quadratic formula or Pythagoras's theorem whereas if you actually have an engineer that comes in and does use that it makes it like, okay, no, I should pay attention in school because this is useful for me growing up. Yeah, a very good point. <laughs> so tell me what happened then when you went uh, from A-level to degree and onwards. 
Well, it fits in quite nicely with what you were just saying, Hannah, about um, how at such a young age you're sort of set down one path. You have to pick your subjects and stick to it um, because my next phase is all about me changing my mind. Um, so I finished my A-levels in 2015. Goodness me, that feels like a long time ago now. Um, and I went to the University of Bath to do physics with astrophysics, the subject I had loved so much and I was really grateful to be able to go and do it at university. And I had this plan. I'd signed up to do a master's degree. So it was a five year master's degree. And then I was going to go do a PhD straight afterwards. And I was going to be an astrophysics researcher. By this point in my life, I'd found out about people like Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who discovered pulsars. And I was like, I want to be her. I want to make incredible discoveries like that. But actually, three months into my degree, I realized I didn't quite like academia as much as I thought <laughs> I might have done. Um, which is partially because so I'm from a low income background. I was the first person in my family to go to university. So when I was having these discussions about this is what I want to do with my future, I want to go do this. There wasn't anybody to tell me what the reality of that was actually going to be like, how it's a lot of lab report writing, a lot of essays, a lot of research. It's not just doing fun experiments all the time. It's quite a lot of hard work. And so when I went to university, I was perhaps a bit unprepared on that front for what it was going to be. And after three months of lab reports and essays, I thought, OK, I'm really enjoying my degree. I'm loving learning about this topic I'm so interested in, but I do not want to do this as a career. I can't do this forever. So three months in, I dropped down to a bachelor's degree. So that was a year shorter um, and I knew I didn't want to go do a PhD. And then I just kind of put off any decision making for a little while. I thought, you know, I've got three and a half more years till I graduate. I don't need to make a decision on my future just yet. Um, and then in my third year, I went on a placement year. So Bath Uni does a lot of professional placements for people. So I spent the year at PwC, big financial services firm, and I was working in their audit teams, which seems like a really weird thing to do. Nothing related to physics. But I was told at the time roughly half of the physics graduates from both Bath Uni and unis across the country end up in finance because they've got a lot of the transferable skills like we were just saying the maths foundation the analytical thinking and obviously there's a lot of money in finance so a lot of people went down that route and the thing I learned for myself that year is actually I want a job that uses the knowledge I've gained I want to do something in STEM I don't want to move into finance but then that left me really confused in my final year because I'd said okay I don't want to do academia I don't want to do finance. What do I want to do? And I've now only got less than a year till I graduate and I need to decide what I'm doing. Um, and it was actually then again that things took another turn. So in my final year, I got to choose some modules and I picked one called computational astrophysics. Now, my reason for choosing it was purely because it didn't have an exam. <laughs> I wanted to do coursework instead. But that was a unit where I learned to code for the first time. So I learned to code when I was 22, which for a lot of people is quite late, especially now where they teach coding in primary schools. So I got to learn a bit of C, a bit of Python. It was mostly self-taught with a few lectures in between. But even with that couple of months of programming, I realized I really enjoyed it. I found it really interesting. And I was able to see the potential in, you know, just writing a few lines of code. I was able to simulate how fluids behave on the edge of stars or how photons move from a stellar core out to the surface and make the bright lights we see in the sky. And I was able to do that in a couple of months. So, you know, with a few more years, what could I do? 
But then this left me in a predicament because I didn't have the formal background that a lot of software companies still look for. I didn't do computing at A level. I didn't do computer science bar this one two month module I'd never done any coding before at all and so this closed a lot of doors for me I couldn't go into any graduate level roles in computing and software I couldn't go into any entry level jobs either and so I was left feeling like a bit hopeless I didn't know what I was going to do and then I went to a careers fair and I met someone from Altran so Capgemini engineering was Altran back when I started um, and they told me about this apprenticeship and I was a bit confused at first. I was like, why are you at a graduate level careers fair advertising an apprenticeship? They are for 18 year olds fresh out of college. They're not for people like me. And he said, no, no, it's a graduate apprenticeship. We're looking specifically for people with STEM degrees that aren't computing related so that we can reskill you and upskill you in programming because you have all the soft skills. You have the right mindset. You have the problem solving ability and we can teach you Python or C or whatever language you want. We can do that very easily. And so we're looking for people like you. And that's how I fell into this job was a graduate apprenticeship. That's so cool. But how did you feel when finally someone articulated what you wanted? Like, um, was it a relief? How did you feel when he said, yeah, you're exactly what we're looking for with the background we're looking for to do the thing that you want to do? Yeah, I think a mixture of relief and excitement. I nearly bit his hand off. <laughs> I was so excited. I was, and then when he was telling me about the software they make and how it's really important and has a positive impact on the world, I don't think I could have sent him my CV fast enough. I went straight back to my house and emailed it to him then and there. Like, I really, really want this job. And it just, it seemed like everything had finally fallen into place where I'd spent the past four or five years of my life really confused. And now here it was, the right opportunity, the perfect opportunity for me had come along. And doing that apprenticeship was probably the best decision I've made in my career so far because I wouldn't be here without it. That's good to hear because obviously you had that experience where I think I know what I want. I want this academic pathway and the degree and the master's and the PhD and the research. And then the reality was different when you got there. Was the reality different when you went in the apprenticeship or was it what you were expecting it was what I was expecting they set out quite realistic expectations of what it was going to look like so I was working four and a half days as a sort of regular full-time employee and then spent half a day a week with virtual tutors uh, learning the foundations of computing and software development so the more theoretical stuff because um, actually a lot of what I do in my job is stuff that I learned in the full-time bit of my apprenticeship it's working in teams, it was learning how to program in the specific way for the specific type of software. Whereas the apprenticeship teaching gave me just more of a general foundation in, this is how a software development lifecycle works. These are different testing strategies, all that kind of stuff that people would have covered in their degrees. And it kind of brought me up to speed and helped me get a bit of a deeper understanding of what I was doing. So I wasn't just coasting along, you know, learning on the job every day. I actually did understand deeper what I needed to be doing and why it was important. And yeah, it was exactly what I thought it would be actually. It was tougher at times, obviously working full-time project needs will sometimes take over priority from your apprenticeship and your studies. But I think that's common with a lot of apprenticeships nowadays. But I was lucky to have really supportive managers and really supportive leadership team who 
ensured that I got my training time so that I could finish my apprenticeship, which I did in June of last year, to much relief. I'm glad I don't have to do any more exams <laughs> or coursework anymore. Um, and yeah, I've stayed with Capgemini Engineering since because I really like my job. So what is that movement now from the um, apprenticeship to what position do you go into when you finish the, the apprenticeship? Okay, so I joined my apprenticeship as a junior consultant engineer, which yeah. might not mean much, but it's essentially a software engineer. And then when I finished my apprenticeship, I got promoted to consultant engineer. So the next level up and it doesn't mean too much because I'm still at a relatively junior stage. But what it does mean then is once I'm at consultant engineer, I can set my own training so I can decide what I want to learn next, whether I want to specialize in a particular bit of software development or what type of projects do I want to go on? I have a bit more say because in the apprenticeship, we're put on project rotations so that we can learn all the skills we need to complete our apprenticeship. Whereas now I've got that general grounding. It's actually, what are you interested in and where do you want your career to go? And at that next level up, you have that bit more responsibility for it. Um, and now we're back in appraisal season again and fingers crossed might get promoted again this year. Yay, I will keep my fingers crossed for you. Absolutely. So I know that alongside this um, career that you're carving out for yourself, you're also, what was it now, vice chair of the Y, so the Women um, women in Science and Engineering Young Professionals Board. Quite a long title once again. It is a long title. I was wondering what the I stood for for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just checking there. So thank you for, for jumping in to save me. So what, what is that role, that volunteer role that you're doing? Okay, so the Wise Young Professionals Board um, is a voluntary board made up of 12 people from STEM businesses and sectors across the UK. So none of us are from the same job, which is really exciting. Get to learn lots about what else is going on in areas like civil engineering, mechanical engineering, all this other stuff I've never done. Um, and we essentially run national level projects to help inspire, advocate for, and engage with the current and future generations of women in STEM. So it's our job to make sure that, you know, students and even children who might be interested in science and technology and engineering and maths um, have access to role models. They have access to careers advice. They have access to pretty much anything they need to overcome the barriers that still are in their way into getting into the career they want or the subject they want if they're thinking about university. And for those women that are currently in STEM careers, it's making sure they feel supported. So they're part of a larger network of people who are like-minded, can share experiences with them. It's making sure that they have access to progression and training and development. Um, we're currently doing a piece of research on the board into the retention of women in STEM. So why are actually senior women or middle level women in STEM leaving their industries? It's quite a big problem across the UK. So we're trying to understand what is it that's making you leave? Is it maternity related? Is it general health related? Is it progression related? Is it stereotype related? There's so many potential factors. Um, but yeah, so we undertake projects, including research. We also run an annual competition for primary and secondary school children. Uh, last year, we had one that was called Light Up the City, which was a set of logic puzzles designed to test all different areas of thinking and the end result was if you solve the puzzles you get a special code that would help bring a smart city back online after a mass power outage 
Um, but actually, when you entered the competition, you entered a prize draw to win a coding robot, some Tara Bins books, um, or an Amazon voucher. And that was really successful last year. And speaking of Tara Bins, that's another great thing we do. So HarperCollins Primary run this series. And if you've not heard about it, would highly recommend, even though it's a children's book. Um, it's all about this girl called Tara who has a magical dressing up chest. And whenever she puts on an outfit from the chest, she becomes that person. But What's special about these books is all the costumes are STEM jobs. So they're engineers, they're microbiologists, they're volcanologists, they're, you know, all these crazy jobs that you I never heard of at school. And now all these girls have an opportunity to learn about them in ways that I didn't. Um, so we work with HarperCollins really closely because when they publish the books, they also alongside that publish case studies on real women who do the jobs that are featured in the books. So we help them find the role models, we help produce and review the case studies. And that's a really exciting piece of work that's impacted, I don't even know how many people in the UK, but that's really exciting. And then we also support WISE. So WISE is the main business body that we sit under. So obviously we're volunteers, but WISE is a company with paid staff. Um, and we support them with their annual conference. So that's happening in the last, towards the end of this year. Um, we also run social media campaigns with them. So we ran a couple last year. One was called hashtag wise women, which was all about celebrating minority women in STEM. So people from different ethnic backgrounds, LGBTQ community, um, people with disabilities, neurodiversity and championing them to make them, them and their work more visible so that if there's any person sitting at home saying there's no one that looks like me in STEM. Yes, there is. And they're right here. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it's a really fantastic role. Um, I've been vice chair for just over a year now. So I joined the board in January 2020, just as a member looking after the social media team, became vice chair last year. And so that has just upped my responsibility. So I assist our wonderful chair, Crystal, with leading the board, running meetings, um, organizing our projects, making sure we're you know running to time and budget. But it's a really great piece of work and something it's an organization I'm really proud to be part of because I think we're making real tangible change in the UK. And what a vast array of activities for different parts of that STEM pathway you're involved with as well. I'm going to have to look up those Tara Bins books because I hadn't heard of them before. Um, my daughter's only four but already um, I, I want to make sure that we've got the books and the literature there to really help and support her, like you said, be whatever she wants to be, but also be able to see what the possibilities are. And the same for my boys as well. So we don't get down that stereotypical role of, I like science, I'm going to be a doctor or I do this. Absolutely. So I be that. There's so much more out there. And I think, especially when you come from the first generation to university families as the same was for me you don't always know what the options are mm -hmm. and just having more literature in a way that's accessible is going to make a huge difference but the bit for me that I'm super passionate about is actually the retention the retention of women minority groups those from with any characteristic that they feel separates them or makes them different to somebody else in some way because this is what I see the most and um, particularly with the clients that I work with, that we get to a certain stage on that career conveyor belt, should we say. And then there's this huge avalanche of people that leave. And you mentioned there some of the different factors that are contributing to that. Um, and I know that in chemistry, 
they, in particular, the Royal Society of Chemistry did a report called Breaking the Barriers, where they started to look at all the different factors. And they found that actually all the factors were important. Yeah. And therefore, there needed to be interventions for each different factor. Is that the kind of way that WISE is heading with their research or do you know? Yeah, so we're still in the very early stages. So we are hoping to, you know, put surveys out and sort of gather our data this year. Um, last year, we were more in the idea forming stage. So actually, what do we want to focus on? What do we want to look at? But I've, I'm fairly confident we're going to get a similar result to that report because the issue of gender equality in STEM is complex. It's not a one size fits all solution. If it was, I was hoping we would have fixed it by now, but clearly it's much more complicated than that. So we'll see what the data says and go from there. But I imagine it's going to be a mix of solutions that are needed to make a meaningful impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's not just a gendered issue. It's the intersectionality between gender, race, um, whatever characteristic it is that really makes it so very complex mm -hmm. and intertwined. Um, so the other thing that I want to point out is how well you speak. So Thank you. you come on and you've been really confident in the way that you communicated who you are, what you do. So have you always had that innate confidence within yourself? No, <laughs> I think it's quite a common answer you hear from public speakers. Everybody thinks you were sort of born this way, you know, toddling around, talking to everyone all the time. And that just wasn't me. No, I um, used to get very nervous. My mum always used to say I'm a bit of a hand flapper. So whenever I used to talk when I was younger, my hands would be all over in front of my face, <laughs> up in the sky, kind of wherever they wanted to be. Um, and I think because people noticed that, obviously it's quite a big action, that made me more nervous because I was even more aware of them staring at me. Um, and I found it really difficult because I was quite a quiet child growing up. I was very much keeping myself to myself, head in a book. Um, wasn't the confident type to sort of walk in a room and start a conversation with somebody. It's definitely a learned skill and one that I feel very confident with now, but it's one that I have been learning for at least 10 years. I think a lot of people think public speaking comes, you know, one or two speaking events later, you've nailed speaking. No, not even slightly. Um, the first time I remember actively looking at developing my public speaking was when I was about 16. I went on the NCS challenge program for 16 and 17 year olds, which looks at developing skills and providing experiences that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and on that course, I did a public speaking class. So we had a group of, I think, maybe 10, 20 of us, and we were asked to speak on a topic that interested us. Of course, I spoke about space and astronomy. What else did I talk about? Um, and what, what we, else is there? Well, exactly. <laughs> and so that. we had, had to go up on this stage in front of everybody else and with no training, just kind of see what you produced, what happened. And I just remember being a mess. I couldn't look anybody in the eye. I was staring at the floor, my hands were everywhere. I'd forgotten what I wanted to say. And in that class, we just were taught really basic things. So like breathing, taking your time, don't be nervous to look at people. Um, don't feel like you have to have a script memorized because actually that can come off really inauthentic and robotic and you're a person presenting to people. So, you know, make it relatable. They want to hear you speak. They don't want to hear what you've written down beforehand word for word. 
Um, and then I was also lucky. So when I was really small, about five, I did go to stage school. So I learned a bit of drama and obviously that teaches you confidence, but more for me, it taught me how to pretend to be confident. Uh, so when you're perhaps not feeling you know, your best or you're about to go on stage and the nerves are starting to get the better of you. I learned a lot of techniques on how to just put a face on and sort of fake it till you make it. Because if you pretend to be confident within a few minutes, even you'll start feeling confident if you pretend for long enough. Um, but yeah, so it was really scary at first. But I think that growth comes from moving out of your comfort zone. And it definitely was completely out of my comfort zone when I first, first started doing speaking. Um, I had my first like in-person keynote speak last year, which was really exciting. I'd done a lot of virtual talks, obviously with COVID, but that was my first one in person where people could see my hands. Oh, wow. and, and actually it went really well and I got lots of positive feedback. But if you don't put yourself in those situations that make you a bit nervous or a bit scared, you're not gonna learn. And so I think that's, if you want to get into public speaking, the first thing you've got to do is just put yourself out there. And when an opportunity comes up, take it. And if there aren't op any opportunities, make some. If you're at school or college or uni, chances are you'll have to present at some point in your studies on something. So make sure you use that to learn. If you're at work, always ask, can I give a presentation on this to somebody, please? I want to develop the skills because you know the opportunities aren't always going to come to you. You've got to make sure you go and find them. I think that's such a great piece of advice, actually, because if we are a little bit scared or nervous about public speaking, it's a great opportunity to step back, decline, do as much as we can to avoid, thinking that if I avoid enough, I won't have to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> but the reality is that it will negatively impact the whole trajectory of your career because public speaking and just being able to communicate effectively, whether that's in a group, in a presentation, on a one-to-one -one is a skill for life mm -hmm. that we all want to be able to, um, I guess, improve at and get better at over time. So I love the fact that you identified it as a skill and went, how can I, how can I throw myself in the deep end with this sink or swim kind of um, opportunity for you? And when you were talking about, okay, my hands were all over the place and people who are listening won't be able to see, but we're actually doing the movements. Um, in public speaking, they're actually called satire categories. Mm. So politicians will be taught how to use their hands effectively in communication terms. So the, the wavy hands one is actually called the distractor. And while sometimes it can be, um, you know, not appropriate because it distracts from what you're actually saying, at other times it can actually be helpful in distracting the audience and segueing into a different topic, for example. <laughs> there you go it's all about channeling what you can already do isn't it and making sure you fine-tune your skills to improve yeah exactly and there's another one called um I'll only tell you this one but called the blamer which is what Donald Trump did a lot you know he points at people uh yes blaming style like I'm gonna point my finger at you and when you see Barack Obama doing the same move he does it with um his finger and his thumb together like a point mm. And instead of doing it in, a, in the context of a negative, he does it in a positive some way. So he's telling you just how amazing it's going to be at this, this, and this. And he's pointing at you. So you're like, oh, I'm getting blamed for this, but I'm being positively blamed. And it leaves you with a different feeling. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of technical skills when it comes to 
presenting and public speaking that we can learn that just take it to the whole next level. So I think it's great that you're on that pathway too. Um, I know, who knows where you might end up? TED Talk next, what do you reckon, Bella? Oh, who knows? <laughs> we'll put it out there to the university, what happens. <laughs> yeah, we'll put it out there, but I, I've got a feeling a big stage is calling you very soon. <laughs> So I do want to pick up on one thing because you are in the area of, okay, physics, maths, and then computer science and coding, which is very traditionally um, a male dominated environment. So what has your experience been in working in something that is heavily male dominated? Yeah, so I will say the stereotypes are still true. There is massively male dominated, even in my office. But actually, I think I've been quite lucky in my career because my gender has more helped me thrive than anything else. It's not been a barrier to me doing anything. It's actually helped me succeed. Um, we've got a lot of male allies in the office. So people that understand not only the benefits that diversity brings, and, you know, they appreciate the different points of view and the fact that we need to get more women and people from other backgrounds in. But whilst they recognise that, they don't treat me any differently for being a woman. I'm just in the meetings. I get an equal say. I get to, you know, contribute just as much as everybody else. They don't really recognise the fact that I am a woman. But then in some of my other roles, so like the Wise Young Professionals Board, and I also co-lead our women's network, they recognise the value in my differences at that point when it's appropriate. So we've got a really great balance. And I was also lucky that my manager, who's also a guy, um, is really supportive and he's championed me from day one and encouraged me to build new skills and showed me how I can be even better by the time I'm here next year. He's never put a ceiling on me. I think he knows I wouldn't like it if he did, but he's never <laughs> even tried. And he's just, yeah, he's seen me for my skills and my merits. And I think that just means so much to women, which is really sad because a lot of women their colleagues can't get past their gender so rather than saying you know oh you did really well on that piece of work it's like you know oh, I don't know how you balance that with childcare, or just kind of focusing on things that are a bit irrelevant to the job just I want you to just tell me what I did well at work today I don't want you to feel pity for the other things I've got to do that's a different mm -hmm. issue at work so it's weird because it's a balance because I like it that it's nice that especially with COVID now that more men are recognizing the extra stuff that women have to do like with childcare, like with looking after el elderly relatives, like doing more chores than men tend to do stereotypically. I like that it's being recognized but don't let that change your understanding of how great women can be at their jobs don't let you think oh you know I can't ask her to do that bit of work because I know that she's really busy at home and I know that she's got to go pick up the kids so I'm not going to give her that opportunity to grow at work actually ask her because mm. you know she might well be too busy and you've completely understood the situation and she'll say no thank you I don't have time or she might turn around and go actually I'd really love that opportunity to develop my career and so it's all about not making assumptions about women. And I think that's what I really like in my job. Um, but obviously, there's still a way to go. I think I saw a statistic that only 17% of the UK's tech workforce is women, which is far off 50-50. And I think the key things we need to change there to improve that stereotype are one, 
male allies. Like I said, I'm really lucky to have lots at my work, but I know a lot of other women in STEM do not have such a privilege to be surrounded by forward thinking diversity pro people yeah. you know we a lot of places particularly with older generations they're stuck in their ways and stuck in their stereotypes and for particularly young women coming in with really strong views on things that disrupts the culture a lot and can lead to you know problems being exacerbated and I'm glad I haven't experienced that but I know it's out there so that's the first thing and I can't remember what the second thing I was going to say was um male allies oh yes and improving visibility of role models um because like I said even down to the school level I didn't know that there were careers out there that women were doing in STEM and even today I think we've got much better visibility of role models but there's more to be done and it's more also about empowering other women to be those role models because there are going to be situations in life where you walk in a room and you're still the only woman because with, it's 2022 and it's not the problem's not solved yet. There's still a lot of places where there are no women in the room and someone's got to be the first. And it's about empowering those women to be brave and say, I will be the first and I will be a role model to other people. I don't need someone to go and do it for me. Whilst that would be nice and probably make things easier, I don't need to. I'm confident in myself and my abilities. I know I deserve to be here. I know that my gender should not be holding me back and I can do this. And women's confidence is a huge piece, not just in STEM, but usually in general. And I think if we can combat that, which I think is also combated with male allies, you know, encouraging you and championing you, that we could have a much more diverse workforce in the next 10, 20 years. And that's the dream, really, because the more diversity we have in the workforce, the better the solutions that we create that are actually fit for all members mm -hmm. of society, as opposed to just a subsection of society, as we see time and time again um, when we see examples out there. So I'm so pleased to hear that you have been championed throughout your career so far and that you haven't really felt held back by any of the sort of implicit internal structural barriers that are actually in place day to day that are not working in our favor and I'm pleased that you don't feel you've come up against that and um, whether consciously or unconsciously right now <laughs> um, I really like the quote by Gandhi who says be the change that you want to see in the world mm -hmm. so if we turn this on its head and we say that you are that role model right now because there are not that many of you where you're working and where you're heading in this particular company, should you choose to stay there. If you were being the change that you wanted to see in the world, what would you kind of, what would be your motivational message that you would give yourself right now? Oh my gosh. Wow. What a question, Hannah. Sorry. Is that a biggie? <laughs> yeah. What advice would I give myself right now? Right now. Woman? Yeah. Right now, I'd just say, continue to be brave. I think bravery is underestimated as a personal quality. It's also not one that people tend to look for. It's not one that people look for in leaders. So when you see, you know, a job application for a team leader or a manager, I would, I would bet money, it will never say brave on it, or, you know, full of courage or something along those lines. Whereas actually, 
particularly for women, it does take a lot of bravery to be a role model. You're putting yourself out there for others to judge. You're, you know, making a profile about yourself, putting pictures about yourself, getting involved in opportunities like this today where you're sharing your views and opinions with the world. And not everyone's going to like it. Whilst I'm sure many listeners of this podcast are thrilled that it exists and the work that it's doing, there are people out there who will disagree, who say, you know, well, women should be working at home. I don't understand the problem. I don't know why they're just complaining. They should be lucky they have a job. And you're going to come up against that criticism. And actually, I think it's a sign of success if you are, because if you're not being criticized you're not making big enough waves so that was a good one (laughs) yeah so I think be brave accept that you're going to come up against criticism rejection opposing opinions and just have courage in your convictions because if you've got drive to say I want to make this huge change on the world you have to just go for it and not care what other people think you know if you look at people who have changed the world in the past like female scientists who fought for their accolades and fought for their awards and fought to even have the opportunity to be a researcher um they had to be brave they couldn't just cower away so like for instance dame jocelyn bell bonnell when she published her research on pulsars i believe it was her mentor who actually got accredited with the discovery at the time and it only came to light later that how involved she had been and then she was recognized for her work as she should have been But she could well have cowered down, said nothing, gone and lived a happy life just as a researcher in some other area, forgotten about it. But no, she stood up for herself because she knew what she was worth. And now she's this incredible role model for so many in the astrophysics community and beyond. So that's what I would say. Wow. I feel like I want to bottle you up. (laughs) Open you up every morning as like my personal cheerleader. That was incredible. Thank you. Yeah, and just like a take home message for me, because um, having got more visible on LinkedIn and other platforms, occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally you do come up against opposing opinions to what you're doing or people that don't like what you're saying or who you are or what you stand for. And just note, like noting for myself that obviously the more you put yourself out there, the more you're going to come up against opposing views because you've come up against a wider variety of people. And it's not that it's bad or wrong or you've done something wrong in some way. It's just that you're not for everybody. Mm-hmm. And or people are not at the stage where they're ready to listen to what you've got to say at that moment in time, whatever it is, but not to let that put you off. In fact, make it be a sign of success. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And you shouldn't be for everybody. If you're for everybody, what are you really talking about? Because you should be standing up for the minorities and the people that need the support, not for everyone. Yeah, and I often get criticism, you know, why have you gendered the way that you support your help? Um, um, Men are facing the same challenges in academia, and a lot of the time they are as well. But equally, when we look at the statistics, I have a subset of people that I feel that I resonate with and that I can help. And that's the pathway that I've chosen to make my difference in the world. But yes, not for everybody, um, but such a great piece of advice and reminder to me and to everyone else that's listening. And I guess from my perspective as a coach, when I hear the word brave and bravery, what that means is that there's an underlying fear 
that's driving that action. So my encouragement to you would be to, because you're right, it's not seen in any job advert anywhere that you should be brave. <laughs> so my encouragement would be to identify and let go of whatever the fear is that's making you call it brave in the first place. And to maybe think about what it is that you're moving towards and make that be the driving factor for you, the inspiration there. Um, and maybe there's a way to let go of some of the fear in the process. Mm, very Ooh. good. Just, uh, sorry, um, unsolicited coaching <laughs> on the podcast today. <laughs> never, ever say no to coaching. Another good piece of advice for people. Never say no. <laughs> So I want to thank you again so much for your time. But also, like I said, I wish I could bottle you up because you're so enthusiastic and I'm so grateful that you are one of the voices on that board. And WISE has done very well to get you there and would do very well to keep you as someone who is championing um, women in STEM and all other groups that fall into the categories as well. Well, thank you, Hannah. Thank you for having me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women in STEM Career and Confidence. To get further support in your journey, join me in Breakthrough Unleashed on Facebook.